Today is more than about Democrats and Republicans. It's about restoring the Constitution's checks and balances to the Trump administration. It's about stopping the GOP and Mitch McConnell's assaults on Medicare, Medicaid, the Affordable Care Act, and the health care of 130 million Americans living with pre-existing medical conditions. I'm Dan Diamond. This is Pulse Check, and that was Nancy Pelosi, the likely next House Speaker. And welcome to Democrats' new health care math. They won control of the House on Tuesday, adding notable new members like a nurse and a former HHS secretary. They took over several state houses. And perhaps, most significantly, Medicaid expansion appears to be looming in multiple states. It was a good night for Democrats, and health care helped get them there. But it wasn't a perfect night, as Republicans also won and made key gains in the Senate. Joining me to make sense of the midterm elections, Rachel Rubine, our Providers reporter, making her podcast debut. Hello, Rachel. Hi. And joining again, Paul Demko, our insurance reporter, back for another round around the podcast table. Hey, Paul. Good to be here, Dan. Yes, your, your energy is contagious. And Adam Cancran, our do-it-all reporter. Welcome back, Adam. Good early morning, Dan. As Adam alluded to, we are recording this at about 12.30 a.m. on Wednesday, with some key races still in the balance. But we know enough to offer some insights and implications of some election outcomes. And let's start with the big news. The House has flipped to Democratic control. There are 27 flips. As we record this, there will likely be more by the time you are listening to this. And many of those losses had healthcare connections. Let's start with the Ways and Means Health Subcommittee. Adam, you've been tracking this closely. Who are some of the flips that matter the most? Sure. Per- perhaps maybe the biggest name on the Ways and Means Committee is, is Pete Roscom. He's a, a representative from Illinois, uh, and he is has kind of been up in the upper echelons of the Republican Party. He was uh, chief deputy majority whip uh, for a while, and he was obviously on the, the Ways and Means Committee, played a big role in passing not just the health care repeal bill uh, through the House, uh, but also the tax bill that actually made it into law and in the process repealed Obamacare's individual mandate. Uh, he was representing a district that Hillary Clinton won in 2016, uh, facing a tough race against Sean Caston, uh, and ended up going down tonight. Um, kind of a, a harbinger of what was to come in some of these Clinton districts that, that Clinton had carried by a good margin. Um, no matter whether you were a, a House Republican who had been there for only a couple years or who had been there for a while, uh, that was going to be a tough race. This was going to be a tough year to pull it out. And Ways and Means saw multiple Republicans losing beyond Pete Roskam. Uh, Rep. Carlos Curbelo from Florida was one of those. And he was one of those interesting lawmakers because um, as of the morning that House Republicans were going to vote on their Obamacare repeal bill, he was one of several Florida lawmakers where we as reporters weren't quite sure where he was going to vote. He ended up voting to repeal and and replace Obamacare, but um, got slammed for that in the midterm. So just another example of how pivotal healthcare was. Topher, Topher Spiro of the Center for American Progress was exulting on Twitter when Curbelo went down, calling him the key vote on that repeal measure because, as, as you're saying, Rachel, he had been a pivotal potential swing vote that liberals just couldn't win over at the end of the day. Yeah, so Eric Paulson is another uh, Ways and Means member who who got just drubbed in the suburbs of Minneapolis. It's sort of a classic district that uh, everybody predicted um, was going to be 
uh, in big trouble for Republicans because Trump's just deeply unpopular in those areas. And 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 Paulson was probably most notable for being um, the foremost advocate of. Uh, uh, repealing Obamacare's medical device tax. Um, that's a district with a lot of device makers in it. Um, so he uh, he went down and went down bad to uh, to uh, Dean Phillips. Another key committee in the House, Energy and Commerce, overseeing health care, Leonard Lance, another Obamacare target. He voted against repeal, but wasn't enough to save him. He went down Tuesday night. And there were other departures on Energy and Commerce as well. Well, well, I mean, some of them are not due to defeats, but there are some people. I mean, Marsha Blackburn won the Senate race in Tennessee. She was on ENC. You also had Kevin Kramer, who won the Senate race in North Dakota. Um, he was on ENC. And then Ryan Costello, a retiring uh, House member um, as well. So big shakeup on that committee, too. And not necessarily because of defeats. Some of them are graduating up right. to the Senate. And then in terms of the new members coming in, as Democrats ride this this wave of several dozen additions, one member is familiar to Washington, D.C. health folks. It's Donna Shalala, the former HHS secretary under Bill Clinton, now a freshman member in, in her 70s. An interesting story, but someone who will bring some healthcare expertise to the chamber. And then Lauren Underwood, a new member from Illinois who Pulse Check listeners will be familiar with. She was on this show just a few months ago, an Obama-era HHS official and a registered nurse. And Dan, what caused you to to, to fix on that race and, and highlight that early on? Well, I, I think Underwood was, was indicative of so many things that Democrats wanted to highlight. She was a woman running in, in a year when trying to get female champions into Congress was important for Democrats. And she was structuring so much of her race on her opponent, Randy Holcren's opposition to Obamacare and his repeal efforts. So the fact that she won in a district that historically has been a Republican stronghold, very interesting and and worth watching her given her HHS expertise and what she wants to do with that in Congress. So we've talked about a few folks from Illinois, Roscom, Underwood. Virginia also saw some major transitions. Adam, you watched that state pretty closely. Absolutely. And, and this is a state that has trended a little bit bluer, especially on health care over the past couple of years. You, you'll remember they expanded Medicaid uh, after Ralph Northam uh, won the governorship. And, and tonight, uh, three major seats ended up flipping from red to blue, most notably and maybe most surprisingly, uh, Dave Bratt losing. And if you remember, he was the Freedom Caucus, very conservative member who took Eric Cantor's seat back in 2014. Now that traditionally Republican seat is going blue, uh, losing to Abigail Spanberger. And it's, you know, really kind of an interesting study in a night where there wasn't a massive blue wave like some had predicted. Uh, but in certain cases, in certain districts where Democrats were able to prosecute a case uh, based squarely on an issue that matters a lot to people, in this case, health care, uh, it was a winning issue and it was it ended up being a winning race. So um, that was one I was watching very closely and, and kind of surprised at, at, uh, at that one flipping. So we've talked about some of the rank and file members, but certainly the leadership bears watching too. And Adam, you, our colleague Alice Miranda Olstein, have done a lot of tracking of who is going to be in charge in a new Democratic House of the key committees. Who should our listeners be watching? Well, I'd say on the Energy and Commerce Committee, obviously, you have to watch Frank Pallone. Uh, he's a longtime congressman from New Jersey, but this is his first time chairing the Energy and Commerce Committee. And you have to remember, this is the first time that Democrats will control ENC, which is the main health care committee, uh, since they passed Obamacare in 2010. And they've been out of power ever since then. 
and in talking to Pallone a couple months ago, uh, his main thing was he wanted to, number one, uh, really try and pass legislation or at least champion legislation that would roll back some of the things the Trump administration has done on Obamacare. So uh, legislation restricting the expansion of short-term plans, uh, legislation that would extend uh, more funding for navigators helping people sign up for, for ACA plans. The other thing is he wants to go really hard on investigating the Trump administration in areas where he feels like Republicans have fallen down on the job, uh, mainly around the things that they have done administratively to, as Democrats say, weaken uh, or undermine Obamacare. And I've talked to Pallone's office, too, about the migrant family crisis on the border. That has been something that he's really honed in on. It would not be surprising to see hearings on that issue using his new power running that committee. And, and I would expect to see things start to move fast. This is something that Democrats have been planning for for a couple months at least now. Uh, between ENC, House Oversight, and Democratic leadership, there's been a, a very close coordination in, in where and how to investigate uh, the Trump administration. And Oversight, which you just mentioned, Elijah Cummings in line to slide in there. He also has been keen on the migrant crisis, yes. drug prices, ECA sabotage, as he says. What other committees are there, though, that we should be keeping an eye on? The other one to keep an eye on is Ways and Means. Uh, one of the key members there will be Lloyd Doggett. He could be the, the chairman of the health subcommittee. And the, the interesting thing about him is he is really gung-ho on doing something on drug pricing. And this is an area where, you know, you talk to them, maybe the most optimistic, maybe the most hopeful of Democrats, and they say, we might be able to find a bipartisan compromise with the president on a bill that can lower drug prices. Now, there's a lot of space between Republicans and Democrats. Uh, but they feel like if we're going to be able to do anything in the next couple of years, that's what we can do. And, and Lloyd Doggett has a, uh, a bill that would essentially clear the way for the government to directly negotiate drug prices. Uh, and that's kind of the holy grail for Democrats and especially progressive Democrats. Let me tack on one more leader worth watching, and that might be Rosa DeLauro over on the Appropriations Labor HHS subcommittee. Uh, Tom Cole currently leads that committee. He's the Oklahoma Republican. A great quote for reporters, uh, very accessible. But Rosa DeLauro, the, the New Haven Democrat, New Haven, Connecticut, has been very concerned also about the migrant crisis, ACA, other things. That committee holds the purse strings for HHS. It has a lot of power. And if Rosa DeLauro does take that over, expect her to wield that power and try and wheedle out more information from HHS in exchange for some funding packages. So we've talked about the House and Democrats' gains there. But not so good on the Senate side. As we are recording this, it looks like Republicans are going to extend their advantage, and they may wield that power in new and different ways. Rachel, you've looked at the potential changes in the Senate Finance Committee. Can you explain what might be on tap there? Sure thing. So the thing to look out for today, because it's technically Wednesday, is um, Senator Chuck Grassley. He said um, to ask him the day after the election if he is interested in helming the Senate Finance Committee, which he has chaired before in the past and been a ranking member of for six years. And it's notable because he's very different than retiring Senator Orrin Hatch, who has led the committee for a while, um, particularly on drug pricing. Hatch has been the pharmaceutical industry is one of their staunchest allies. Grassley has supported drug importation. He's led bipartisan investigations into pharmaceutical companies. So there could be some bipartisan work there with ranking member uh, Senator Ron Wyden. 
and you are going to ask Chuck Grassley today. He's not up right now, we think, while we're recording this podcast, but you're planning on asking him right away whether he's taking over this committee. Oh, we'll try and track him down. Yeah, assume assume Grassley asleep. <laughs> as soon as this podcast is over. <laughs> Another Grassley issue that's that's been close to his heart is the tax-exempt hospital work. And, and I've talked with his office in, in the past before about whether that's something that he feels still has more room to run as hospitals continue to turn significant profits. That's something I'd, I'd be interested in watching as well. With a larger Republican majority in the Senate, Adam, will that give Republicans more power to pursue ACA repeal? Well, in a word, no, uh, mainly because they don't have control of the House. And without any way of getting any kind of a repeal bill through a democratic, democratically controlled House, Mitch McConnell is not even going to really give it a try. You know, the one thing you can say about McConnell is that he he only works in kind of assured absolutes for the most part. Uh, and I think what you'll see over the next couple years is a major focus on confirming as many judges as possible, because that's something that Republicans can do unilaterally. On health care, it's going to be really hard to find any kind of bipartisan compromise that would pass both a, a, a pretty strong Democratic House now and also a Senate that has extended its gains on the Republican side. Well, I, I want to challenge that because, Paul, you did a lot of reporting on the ACA insurance markets. And Mitch McConnell at times seemed to suggest that he was in favor of shoring up the insurance markets. Susan Collins had extracted promises from Republican leaders to do so. It wasn't the Senate that killed that legislation. It was the conservatives in the House. Conservatives won't control the House anymore. Can we expect any bills to to help the Affordable Care Act markets? I'd, I'd be very skeptical. I mean, for one thing, I don't think there's going to be the urgency that there was, um, you know, last year when we had, you know, massive premium increases across the country and, and, and uh, you know, dozens of potentially bare counties. We didn't actually end up with any, but, you know, a serious drop in competition, the exchanges, um, particularly in, in rural parts of the country that are uh, predominantly represented by Republicans. Um, but, you know, this year the picture looks very different. I mean, premiums are uh, we don't have final numbers, but at least, uh, you know, preliminarily, it looks like they might be going down a little bit um, nationwide. And we've seen a pretty robust increase in competition with some insurers that had left states returning to them like uh, Molina. Um, so, you know, I, I just it's hard for me to see if they couldn't get it done, uh, you know, this year, why the, there would be the, the impetus to, to do it going forward. And, and one thing to keep in mind, the Trump administration is now taking credit for what they say is a stabilization of the ACA under their watch, uh, as well as the expansion of routes around it. So short term health plans, association health plans. If the Senate went, if the Republican Senate went and did something uh, to try and shore up the ACA, that would kind of undercut the message that, uh, you know, Trump has has saved uh, the Affordable Care Act over the past couple of years. One of the president's big fixations in health care has been drug prices, though, and and his vow that he's going to lower them no matter what. The Trump administration has recently dipped into tactics that Democrats have supported, the idea of using, say, reference pricing and negotiating power to lower drug prices. Could there be some compromise package with a more moderate Republican-led Senate and now Democrats in the House? Well, and this is where I say the most optimistic of Democrats uh, are hopeful that they can go to the president and say, look, 
we both want the same thing. Let's figure out how to do it and pass kind of a sweeping drug bill. Again, I'm not convinced. Uh, Look, you have maybe tops 90 days to hammer something out before the 2020 campaign starts in earnest, and neither Democrats nor Republicans are going to want their opponents to have anything to run on. Uh, So if you can't hammer anything out in 90 days, it's pretty much a dead issue. I I think what I would look for is maybe more incremental things. There is a must-pass bill at the end of the year. Maybe some small gains can be made there as far as legislation addressing drug pricing. Uh, but and, and when you say must pass bill, you mean one of those like funding bills that stuff just gets attached to because exactly. lawmakers have to get it out the door. Exactly. And and I mean, that's kind of an area where, look, you might be able to do something small that everybody agrees on. But the idea of a sweeping drug price reform bill, uh, I would be very, very skeptical of. Yeah, as um, our pharma colleagues noted this week, um, it, you know we shouldn't expect Medicare to be able to then negotiate drug prices. But sort of the most interesting scenario has happened. We have President Trump and his drug pricing plan um, with a Democratic House. Any other lessons from Tuesday night in the Senate? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll make one point, and that is that for all of the talk about health care and pre-existing conditions, it didn't really hurt the Republicans in the Senate. And again, they had an advantage going in. These were a lot of a lot of states that Democrats had to defend. But you look at races that Claire McCaskill in Missouri ran. You look at a race that uh, Heidi Heitkamp in North Dakota ran. It was all about health care, protecting pre-existing conditions. Both of them lost, and they lost by a pretty good margin uh, compared to the polling going into the race, going into election night. Um, so I'm not sure exactly what to take away from that because, on the other hand. Joe Manchin won handily in in West Virginia, and his race, again, was all about protecting pre-existing conditions. Uh, But at the end of the day, we saw that allegiance to Donald Trump, that kind of a deepening red of these states, North Dakota, Missouri, won out over any kind of angst over health care. And just to put some numbers around that, exit polls suggested that a plurality of voters, so more voters than any other, picked health care as the top issue for their vote, something like 41% according to exit polls that I saw, uh, said that healthcare was most important and that Democrats were much more trusted than Republicans. 58% of respondents said they trusted Dems more to handle uh, protections for patients with pre-existing conditions. I think what's interesting about the Democratic senators who lost Adam, they all opposed Brett Kavanaugh as a Supreme Court justice nominee. Now, what came first there? The weakness in their races versus coming out against Kavanaugh? Who's to say there will be more excavation of that in the days to come? Manchin, on the other hand, did support Kavanaugh and and rode to victory. Heitkamp's loss, in addition to being perhaps an indictment of pulse check as a platform to get your message out, um, though I I guess we're batting two for three. If Underwood won in in Illinois and then uh, uh, Susan Kincannon, the uh, Kansas state representative in the state legislature, I think she won too. But Heitkamp had been a real champion for rural health care advocates for issues like maternal mortality. I've talked to researchers, to leaders who have said, we are going to be very sorry to lose her voice because Kevin Kramer does not have the same fluency with healthcare issues as Heidkamp does. Sure. And, and same thing in Missouri. Claire McCaskill really led uh, the charge in the Senate to, to go after uh, prescription drug makers who had contributed to the opioid crisis. And that, at the end of the day, wasn't kind of recognized by the electorate. Uh, versus an opponent, opponent whose whole campaign was really to tie himself as, as closely as possible to, uh, to Donald Trump. So let's close by looking at what happened in state races. And the biggest issue 
was arguably Medicaid expansion. It was on the ballot directly for voters. And then governors who were elected and historically Republican-led states, Democrats are coming in who had promised to expand or, or boost the program. Paul, you were out in the West. You were in Idaho recently. What is the state of the Medicaid ballot race? Well, right now, it looks like three states are going to adopt Medicaid expansion. Um, the results are still preliminary, but I'll, I'll tick through them real quickly. Nebraska, with 80% of the results in, 53% support. Idaho, with 33% of the results in, 61% support. And Utah, with about two-thirds of the results in, 55% support. So it looks like all three of those are likely to pass. Um, on the flip side of that is Montana, um, which um, is voting on whether to continue its Medicaid expansion and to pay for it by raising um, taxes on cigarettes. And they have invited the wrath and, more importantly, huge spending by tobacco companies. And that actually looks like it might very well go down. Um, right now, with about 37% of results in, 54% uh, are opposing um, the Montana referendum. So you mentioned... Medicaid being on the ballot directly for voters. But governors coming in also had a chance to opt in to the ACA Medicaid expansion. Now, there was a lot of focus on Florida. Andrew Gillum promising to finally sway the, the Medicaid expansion debate there after the state legislature repeatedly stopped it, after Republican Governor Rick Scott uh, wavered. Gillum lost, of course. And in other states, Republicans were able to hold on too, though I thought it was interesting that Kansas, Laura Kelly, a Democrat in a historically Republican state, is now going to be in charge. Um, and she's very much cast herself in the mold of Kathleen Sebelius, the former Kansas governor, the former HHS secretary. And as a result, there could be expansion of as much as 150,000 people gaining coverage through Medicaid there. The other, I mean, the other huge state that was out there, though, is Georgia. And I, I don't think this race has been called, but it's looking pretty clear that Stacey Abrams is going to lose to Brian Kemp. So you got to say the two biggest states out there, Florida and Georgia, it looks like that's going to probably be off the table. And, and for Kansas, my question, I guess, that, that the question that kind of comes to the center now is, is if Laura Kelly tries to expand Medicaid, what the Trump administration says. Like obviously, they are against you know any kind of expansion of Medicaid, especially if you're not putting work requirements or or, or other kind of uh, you know requirements on there. That was on my mind too, as I was feverishly uh, messaging people inside the Trump administration at midnight. But my understanding from from them is that they are essentially obligated that if a state puts forward state plan amendment. Even though Seema Verma, CMS administrator, has said, I'm not a huge fan of expanding Medicaid given my concerns over, over program funding, they are obligated to follow the law. Um, it gets a little trickier if there are questions about funding the expansion. Um, but as of right now, those plans could very well be, be adopted by the administration. A few other state races that I thought were interesting, Kevin Stitt winning election as governor of Oklahoma. That's obviously bad news for Medicaid expansion. It also raises some concerns about vaccines. Stitt had talked about how he and his wife were picking and choosing what vaccines to give their kids. And then in Ohio, Adam, you were out there reporting on the opioid ballot measure. What, what have we learned from Ohio as we record this? 
Well, we've we've learned that maybe Ohio hasn't swung as far back left as as maybe some Democrats were hoping. Uh, issue one, which essentially would have uh, downgraded and relaxed uh, drug possession laws in favor of trying to funnel more money to drug treatment, ended up failing and failing by a pretty good margin. Now, there were never really many high hopes for it passing, but advocates were hoping that it would at least be close. Uh, about 60 percent or more voters ended up going against issue one. And on the same night, uh, Richard Cordray, who is a Democratic uh, gubernatorial candidate, ended up losing and, and losing by a by a pretty decent margin uh, to Mike DeWine, who's the, the Republican attorney general. One other theme that we were tracking throughout the election, medical marijuana. It was on the ballot in a number of states. Different lawmakers ran on campaigns supporting it. Rachel, this is an issue you've tracked. What did we learn tonight? Um, well, it seems like it was a pretty good night for marijuana ballot measures. Um, medical marijuana passed in Missouri and appears to have an early lead in Utah. And then Michigan and North Dakota were both looking at legalizing recreational marijuana. And in Michigan, recreational use passed. Um, in North Dakota, it did not. Um, so before tonight, nine states in Washington, D.C. had legalized small amounts of marijuana for recreational use. Hey, Dan, one other race I wanted to jump in with that I think has been called since we started recording, um, and that's Fred Upton in Michigan, who um, you know is former energy and commerce chair and um, you know big player in the 21st Century Cures initiative. Um, so he has won, uh, ended up winning fairly easily. Um, it's not complete, not all the results are in, but he's at 51% right now. Um, so Fred Upton will be returning to Washington. And that's a good reminder that even as we're recording this, news is still breaking. The four of us have to get back to our desks and keep working. But let's let's leave listeners on on a note of what else they could or should be watching that could change in D.C. in the coming weeks. And, and, and I'll give you one thing to watch out for, especially in the next couple months. Uh, you're going to see another kind of trickle of departures outside out of HHS and out of CMS, most likely, uh, for a couple reasons. One, because this is a natural departing point. Uh, you've been with a, an administration for almost two years at this point. Um, a lot of people will leave at that point. But also because Democrats are about to start two years of investigations of subpoenas, of asking for documents, of calling people to the Hill. Uh, and there's really just not that much appeal uh, in spending the next couple of years buried in paperwork. So I would expect to see some departures from, from the administration. Are, are, are you talking about for officials who have to be buried in paperwork or for the re uh, reporters who will be covering a, a little bit paperwork of paperwork heavy hearings? A little bit of both, but I think it's, it's a little bit more excruciating for, uh, for the officials in the Trump administration. Well, we will see what transpires in a new Washington in the weeks and months to come. Adam, Paul, Rachel, thank you so much for joining the podcast at now nearly one in the morning on Wednesday. Thanks, Dan. Thanks. Thanks. And thank you also to our producer, Micaela Rodriguez, and to listeners who are tuning into this special post-election show. You can find Politico Pulse Check on all of your favorite podcast apps. You can find me at ddiamondpolitico.com. And you can find a new episode of Pulse Check in your podcast player next week.